Welcome to Migrant Clinicians Network's inaugural episode of On the Move, a podcast dedicated to providers who work with vulnerable populations, specifically migrant and mobile populations. This is our first episode, and my name is Ashley Michelle Pappen. I am the Project Coordinator in Development and Outreach for MCN's Chico, California office. And with me this morning are Ed Zerowesti and Laszlo Mderis. Take it away, guys. So I'm Ed Zerowesti. I'm the founding medical director of the Migrant Clinicians Network. I'm a family physician who I'm now starting my 40th year as a family physician. Um, uh, take it away, Laz. Okay. Hello, everybody. I'm uh, Dr. Laszlo Medeiros, and I'm also a family physician, and I work in South Central Pennsylvania. I'm both inpatient and outpatient. As you can see from my outfit right now, I am in the hospital. I'm working with uh, COVID patients at this point. Um, my background is also uh, in family medicine. I've worked 25 years in uh, both inpatient and outpatient uh, family medicine and uh, worked with Ed Zerwesti for many of those years. In fact, almost all of them from the time I finished residency in one way or another. So we go back a long ways and we've had a lot of dialogues on many different uh, issues. And today we're gonna talk about uh, vaccination. There is a struggle for cultural acceptance for the vaccines, um, even beyond COVID. And we can certainly trace that in the last 10 years, there's been a gradual decrease in overall vaccine compliance, particularly among parents in America vaccinating their children. Sure. I, I think sometimes we, in public health, we are a victim of our own success. So I grew up in the 1960s and 70s. I still got shots for smallpox and um, you know, all the vaccinations that were required until 1979, 1980, we got rid of uh, smallpox. So we, over time, we've seen less and less of the diseases that were really hurting our population. So Ed goes back a little bit longer. In the 1950s, you, know, you closed down swimming pools because of the polio outbreak. And you know, we, we were able to produce um, the oral and the, and the uh, injectable polio vaccine in those times. And I don't believe that anybody at that point refused polio vaccines because- Yeah, let me just interject, let me just interject real quick. The kid that sat next to me on the bus when I was in first grade got polio and got paralyzed. So you better believe when polio vaccine came out, I was in first grade, that my parents, there was no question that I was gonna get the polio vaccine. There was no question in my school that every person was gonna get the polio vaccine as soon as it was available. Because we saw, and we, we even notwithstanding that kid, we all knew, we all had, knew people that died from polio. Um, so when you, just as Laz was saying, when you have that experience, then vaccines are very, very important uh, because you have that visual, you have that knowledge, you have that history. And the same thing that, that Laz said earlier, when we go to Honduras and people saw kids who had horrible things of secondary to measles and mumps and 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 um, and German measles, then they really wanted to be vac vaccinated. There was it was it was a hundred percent in a lot of those communities. So I think that that now people don't have that historical background, and all they hear is one out of, you know, 100,000 kids will have a bad reaction. And then, and then there's a lot of, you know, there's so many false claims of, of, of secondary 
bad outcomes from vaccines that people grab, you know, they grab onto. Um, and then that gets spread through the communities. I think that's what I meant to say there with a the victim of our success is that when you don't see it around anymore, you don't see the benefits because you're assuming the benefits are given now. And then you say, well, I'm not going to vaccinate my child because this is just not around. And they look at the risks, but they don't really appreciate the benefits and what it costs to get to that point where our society has these benefits. So that's, that is a real challenge. And I, you know, I tell people who don't want to vaccinate their children, I said, please come with me next time I go to some of these countries where they didn't get the chance to have that vaccine because of political um, uprisings or unrest. And in, in those places, there's still vaccine preventable diseases happening. And we have to continue going um, year after year and vaccinating the children to make sure that there is enough um, people vaccinated so these diseases don't start to come back and take over and sometimes be resistant because working in the hospital, I have to give out many different antibiotics. And these are very different, much stronger antibiotics than I did 25, 30 years ago. And because if you get certain diseases that are bacterial and you could have prevented them with a vaccine before I had to treat them with an antibiotic, you know, now I'm in the situation where I treat those bacteria and I have to get stronger and stronger antibiotics, which has more complications in terms of side effects potentially. So I'd rather do the prevention upfront than to treat the disease, you know, afterwards. So that's, that's an important thought as well to consider. It seems like a common thought that we observe amongst populations that are not interested in vaccine access has to do with the idea of herd immunity. And certainly in the most immediate aftermath of coronavirus coming to American shores, we all heard about corona parties being held where parents tried to replicate the chicken pox approach of just getting it over with more quickly. And obviously that had disastrous consequences. But I wonder if underpinning this is the idea of vaccine equity. Is it that we are, like you said, Laz, victims of our own success? We take it for granted that we can beat back any biological threat. In your experience or in your opinions, gentlemen, what do you think about the idea of how the anti-vaccine movement has enabled a lot of the skepticism towards a COVID vaccine? And how will that interfere with vaccine equity as a whole? So I can start. I can start with one example. I was, <clears throat> I was working in Eastern Europe um, in 1995, and around that time there was a big diphtheria outbreak in the former Soviet Union, and part of that was that there was lack of funding for some of the programs, uh, including vaccination programs. And diphtheria is not usually seen by physicians in the United States. In fact, as a medical student, I would have not come across that very much because we have the DTaP vaccine and the D is part of the diphtheria part of that vaccine. So, and, and diphtheria is treatable, but there's actually you know, 15% mortality if you treat it right and you can treat it with certain macrolide antibiotics anyway. So, so it's treatable, but it, it is very lethal for a certain percentage of people regardless. And so it's much, much better for our population to get, treat, uh, to get the vaccine for uh, diphtheria than it would be to just let it come across and you know hurt you because yeah, we could, we could we, do herd, yeah, herd immunity would happen but to reach herd immunity in the united states the estimates are that probably two million people would die 
So the question is, are you, are we as a society willing to sacrifice 2 million individuals? And, and, and there's no question that probably 80 plus percent of those people would be older individuals, many of which who are uh, towards the end of their lives, quote unquote, anyway. Um, but, but there's still a significant portion that will be younger people uh, some of them with pre-existing conditions, but some of them with no pre-existing conditions. So that's always the question. And that's, that's what is happening right now in this country. People are saying, and they're actually, they're, and, and unfortunately it's become very political instead of being um, scientifically looked at, that it, it would be willing to sacrifice a large number of people to reach herd immunity and therefore society would just go on uh, economically without all, all, the, all the things that we've done. Most people, most scientific people feel that that is not a good way to handle this, that you don't have to sacrifice, you can do both, you know, you can um, save those two million lives and responsibly have people protect themselves from getting the virus. You can do both at the same time. So I think that's the big debate right now. And, and, and I think most of the scientific community do not buy into the herd immunity by doing nothing theory. I think that's pretty much been discounted by anybody in the public health sphere. Uh, now there's always outliers. That's a problem. You know, you, you'll have physicians and other um, thought leaders who will have opposing views about this. And they can be very vocal sometimes and uh, very convincing. But the huge majority of public health people think that trying to achieve herd immunity with this particular virus is a bad idea because of the tremendous amount of loss of lives that will occur to achieve that. Yeah, I, I agree. And actually, Michelle, you, you mentioned chickenpox. Now, chicken, chickenpox is a very different virus than the coronavirus family, admittedly. But we don't know a whole lot about the coronavirus yet. And it's just been in our consciousness for not quite a year yet. I think it was December of 2019 that we first started to hear about it in China. But chickenpox is a very interesting, you know, varicella virus in that you get it in childhood and it could be very, very benign. And then 60 years later, you get a huge painful rash on half of your face on this dermatome or part of your arm. And, you know, to, to trace that back to something that you got in childhood is, um, it's a very unusual thing for, for many people to kind of understand that this, this is the same virus basically, and it comes back at you many, many years later, decades later. And we don't know how the coronaviruses behave like that. MERS and SARS-1 back in 2002, 2003, doesn't seem to behave like that, but we just don't know that for sure. So we're in the situation where I don't want to expose children or young people or anybody else unnecessarily to say, well, we're going to get some sort of benefit from this later on. We, we may have some immunity, but viruses can cause strange things 40, 50 years down the line that we don't, we don't know. So, 
So I wouldn't, I wouldn't be too cavalier about just saying, let's expose everybody and then just see what happens. So I, I would still opt for, you know, taking the vaccine when it's coming out in, um, in the months that it takes to get, you know, the phase two trials done and also to try to you know, prevent yourself from getting a, a large dose of this unnecessarily by following social distancing measures that we've been recommending. Yeah, and we don't even wanna do herd immunity with influenza, with the flu. And the flu kills anywhere from 11 to 60,000 people in the United States every year, the flu does. And we've seen that, and that's because of immunizations. It would, there'd be a lot more mortality from the flu if people didn't immunize against the flu. And the flu we now know is at least, COVID is at least five to 10 times more fatal than the flu, at least five to 10 times. I don't think anybody's estimating that, that it's less than five times worse. And so if we've, we've decided as public health that it is, you know, it's risk benefits. You know, you're always weighing risk and benefits. The risk of herd immunity, even every year from the flu, is not outweighed by the, the benefits outweigh the risk of getting a vaccine every year. That's why we're, we've decided to do that. So this virus is at least five times worse. So public health has decided it's really a good idea to get a vaccine and, and vaccinate people and not allow herd immunity to occur because of the total number of deaths that would occur. So it's interesting that you bring up the flu, Ed, and I'm sorry to cut you off, Laz, but I, I am curious if you both would feel comfortable talking about the importance of the flu vaccine in this season in contrast to how it typically has been. And if there's a great way we can segue into whatever you were about to say, Laz, then, you know, take it away. Actually does segue. I just want to show you, this is part of my ID badge here. And this little colored tab here says that I have gotten the influenza vaccine for this year. We walk around this in the hospital. For many years now, we had either mandatory flu vaccination or a mandatory mask wearing. Now, interestingly, there's, there's some people who argue that, hey, we already have the mask for COVID, so why bother with influenza? But I would say that, you know, if you're, if you're in a vulnerable situation with um, a lot of comorbidities like diabetes and hypertension and other kinds of things that we've seen uh, patients coming in with, and you have the flu and you, and you have other diseases as well, you know, your body is now fighting off something that it didn't need to fight off. Let it be strong enough to fight off COVID and get yourself vaccinated against all those things that can affect your lungs and other parts of your uh, system that we do have right now that we've already seen you know, work. So I would like to see you know everybody get as much protection as possible. Again, I'm an advocate for my patients. I work in a hospital. I am now starting to give the vaccination, an influenza vaccine to my patients. And um, if they hadn't had the pneumococcal vaccine, I would recommend that. There's the 13-valent uh, pneumococcal conjugate vaccine, and then there's the 23-valent uh, pneumococcal polysaccharide vaccine. And these, you know, in, in the vulnerable populations, this can save somebody's life. If you have COPD, emphysema, uh, fibrosis, other lung issues, you know, you don't need to challenge your lungs to put them on the edge of, you know, when you're going to need a respirator or a ventilator. 
Uh, so I, I protect my patients and advocate for them to get all the vaccines that are currently available and have been tested through many years. Um, and I take those myself. I think um, I want to protect my patients and I want to people that meet with me in the hospital. So yeah, I, I think that's always a good question, Ashley Michelle. What what Alaz and I personally do? I've already had my flu vaccine this year. So is my wife. So is my my adult children, and so have my grandchildren. So you know, we we practice what we preach. Also, I I wouldn't take a vaccine that I wouldn't I wouldn't offer a vaccine to my patients that I wouldn't personally take myself. So um, I, I think it's really important to get that message out too. Who are the people who are saying you shouldn't be vaccinated? And who are the people who are saying you should be vaccinated? And what are they doing? Uh, you know, I think, it, I think it's always important to, to, again, practice what you preach. Right. I, I've also gotten the Tdap vaccine this year. Tetanus, you should get every 10 years. I was getting close. And uh, so I decided to take that in this, this summer. And the AP part of that is acellular pertussis. Pertussis is whooping cough. That's yet another thing that, you know, you want to protect yourself against. And we give that to children as a vaccine. And over the last several years, we've realized that adults need to be revaccinated against that as well, because as there are outbreaks of pertussis, we realize that in our adult population, you know, we need to revaccinate over time. It's just that immune systems will fade sometimes. And that's just the, the nature of the human condition and the nature of the, the bacterial and viral infections that we get and whatever vaccines we have. But there is ways to protect yourself. And I, I really strongly recommend all of those. So pertussis, whooping cough um, is one of the other ones between pneumonia vaccines, influenza vaccines, so bacterial and viral infections to protect your lungs against all those, you know, as we head into this fall winter season. So I think these, these are things that I would strongly recommend. And I have, like Ed said, um, taking them myself, and I recommend all the patients who are hospitalized to uh, have these also to protect themselves from the next bout of COVID, the next wave that's coming to our part of the country. Listening to you both, it's like a checklist of all the health issues I have and the concerns that I have. When I gave birth to my daughter 10 years ago, it was in the middle of a pertussis outbreak. So I remember the stress of trying to get everyone on board with getting their Tdaps. But I want to go back to something that you said, Ed, which has to do with practicing what you preach. Um, like most millennials, I'm addicted to social media. And I often see this meme making its way around my friends list saying, you know, all of these scientific brilliant minds are telling me that I need to pay attention to the public health component of COVID. But then there's this gal I knew in high school who failed biology class that says it's a conspiracy. And I'm having a really hard time deciding which to listen to. Could you talk a little bit about separating fact from fiction as it pertains not only to vaccines, but certainly vaccines in the overall conversation about COVID? Yeah, what's well, really interesting, you know, I, I, the social media has really changed all that we do now and the, and the education that people get. You know, Candace and I, my wife and I, my wife's a nurse practitioner, midwife, and, and family members all the time are sending us clips of conspiracy theories and and physicians who have gone way out on the limb or on on topics that that seem very um, settled by most of us, 
And I, I think it's really difficult sometimes for the general public to analyze what the real truth is since there's so much misinformation that's going out now. So I think it is important to always look at your source. That's why right now I tell people, listen to Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dr. Anthony Fauci is not what some people have said, that he's part of the deep state and all this sort of thing. Just look at what he has done for 40 years. If you really look what he's done for 40 years, he was one of the major researchers in HIV. And those of us in public health have followed him for 40 years. And he says the truth. And the problem is, he, and he always says this, he's telling you what the facts are at the time that uh, he's speaking. And sometimes those facts change. Just like he keeps getting quoted by politically that he said that masks weren't necessary. In the very, very, very beginning of this pandemic, it was questionable whether this was an airborne virus or not. Initially it was felt not to be, and he made the simple statement that masks may not be beneficial a long time ago. Right. Then, and you, you, it was you and Chad Roy from the CDC who put together a talk at the end of March. And I think that was one of the first times, you know, publicly, at least in the United States that I'm aware of, that that thought about airborne was was even discussed. But real quick on that, that same talk about what Dr. Fauci said. And I remember when he said those things. And those of us in the hospital were very concerned that if all of the United States, 330 million people, would be wearing N95 masks, we're not going to have, as physicians in the front lines here, working in the hospital with COVID positive patients, you know, what's gonna to happen to all the masks? We just don't have enough. And so the triaging was to try to get that to the doctors who are you know, working in intensive care unit, intubating these patients. And then the idea came out of, of cloth masks and other things for the public. And America being the you know, ingenious people that we are, you know, people started fabricating masks. And that was wonderful because then you could generalize to the entire population masks that were not the N95s that we had a shortage of already. So we, we looked at this and said, okay, we change our attitude here to masks for everybody, cloth masks out in public, and then the N95s for those that are super high risk, and the surgical mask for the in-between inside the hospital. So again, like you're saying, we, we evolved, and that's what science does. It evolves based on the facts that we find you know, at the time that we, we learn them. So I think that evolution of thought happened, and that happened not with just Dr. Fauci, but those of us also who are in the front lines of hospital medicine at this point, realizing, okay, the public should have masks, and it won't, like, they're not going to just take all the N95s, and the physicians won't have, you know, any to, to deal with. So that was that was one of the, the turning points there of, of the, uh, the idea that, yeah, the public should wear masks, and the data was coming out that it actually benefits public health not to have you know, the, the aerosolized particles, you know, breathe it, breathing in, in the grocery store, at the bank or wherever. So go ahead. I know you're going to say yeah, something Tom, else. So I was just thinking that, so the other part of this is, unfortunately, this particular virus got politicized instead of basing things on science. And so once something becomes political and people are picking sides, you don't pick sides against a virus. You respect a virus and you try to figure out 
how the virus acts. And then you have to try to figure out how you're going to kill the virus or avoid the virus, right? So you have to study the virus scientifically. And we all know that things evolve and what is true today may not be true tomorrow when we get more information. So someone like Dr. Fauci has many times said, this is what I thought in February, but now with new research, that is no longer true. And people have to keep up to speed on that. So to answer your question, you should always look at the source and make sure that you're picking a source of your information that is scientifically based and not politically based and politically charged. And that can be difficult because there have been physicians and other PhD researchers who have come out very much on the fringe with good credentials, but when you really look into their history, they, they've had some problems with facts and they've published things that got rejected and now they're bitter individuals who have found a platform to spread things that are not true. And it's, and anybody can say anything in public, you know, in the public space uh, with the same amount of weight given to it. And unfortunately then certain people pick that up and just spread it and spread it and spread it. And it's like the old saying, you know, if you, if you tell a lie enough times, people will start thinking it's the truth. So that's kind of where we are right now as a country. And it's very difficult to deal with that when you've gotten so much misinformation. So I think people have to find the right sources and listen to those sources and ignore uh, these fringe individuals. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Ed. And I just wanted to say one other thing on this is that I think on some basic level, all people on all political spectrums understand the evolution of knowledge because you know, if I were to offer you know, a parent uh, medications that were good in the 1970s for certain things, and I say, I'm just gonna give you all the old stuff. I'm, I don't wanna look at all the new research in the last 30, 40 years. You know, I think parents would say, wait a minute, what, what, why are you giving me this stuff? This is, this is, not, what, uh, this is what, not what I want. They want the latest, the best, the, the, you know, what's up to date. And we can say that these are the things that we found over the last 40, 50 years. We can't treat the illnesses that we had 50 years ago with the, what we knew then. We, we evolved our knowledge in so many different areas. And so most parents will say, yeah, give me, you know, I looked this up and on, on a good internet platform and I see these are the things that you need for my child with cystic fibrosis right now. And I listen to those parents and I try to work with them on you know, what they know because as parents who love their children, they're gonna be up to date on this. And if I say, well, I'm going to give you the, the medications and the treatments that, uh, you know, when I was in college and, and first year of medical school, you know, 35, 40 years ago, they say, hmm, I'm not going to go to that doctor. That's, we know that there's, there's more things, better things now than there were at that time. So I think on some level, all the, all the people understand that. But I think what we're seeing for the first time is that the evolution of this knowledge in real time is very transparent and it's on social media. And if we, you know, the, the trials and errors of, of science and understanding how science develops is, is being played out in, you know, in real time on social media. And every time something, oops, this is not the way we gotta go, we gotta go this other way. They say, aha, look at that. 
they went the wrong way. How can we trust that? But ultimately, we, we find our way into you know, a, a good place and a good direction, but it will take time. And right now it's just being played out in, 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 the, in a public format that I, don't, I have not seen before. But again, that's what social media allows us to do for good and for bad. You know, I think we have to go back and, and, and we have to trust science. We have to trust good science. Just another example. One of the leading causes of death in young women used to be cervical cancer. And when Laz and I first started going to Honduras, the number one cause of death in women under 45 in the villages we worked in Honduras was cervical cancer, the leading cause of death. And we now know that that's totally preventable. We also now know that it's caused by a virus and that we have an immunization for that virus. So we literally can eliminate cervical cancer deaths in women. If every young woman and young man, because men can transmit that virus to women, got immunized for that virus that causes that cancer. So if you look historically at what we've done uh, and rely on good science, it'll do great things for people. Just like there's no more smallpox in the world. Smallpox used to be horrible, 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 horrible. No more smallpox. We've almost eliminated polio from the world. How have we done that? We have done that one way. Vaccination. One way. So um, we have to we have to just believe in science and know that science is, is messy. Science is not clean. It takes a while. And and good scientists make mistakes day after day after day and they learn from their mistakes and move forward. And that's exactly what a good scientist, that's why you never believe somebody who says they're never wrong. Anybody who said they've never made a mistake is the person you avoid. Um, anybody that says they've always done great with all their patients and they've never made a mistake, I wouldn't go to that doctor. Dr. Fauci said, this is, you know, we made a mistake. We didn't know this. And now we need to do something else. Good people say, oh, I was wrong about that. And now that I know better, I'm going to do differently. I think that to your point, Ed, and yours as well, Laz, you talk about the evolution of science and that science is messy. And there's a marked distinction between acknowledging that what we knew to be true seven months ago isn't still the case now and that that in and of itself is not a good enough reason to disregard science, right? It's the difference between realizing that an antihistamine like Visceral can also be used to treat anxiety versus realizing that thalidomide should never, been, should never have been used to treat morning sickness. It is messy. And when we talk about messy in science, specifically about vaccines, it's impossible not to have the discussion of how that particular aspect of medical care has been used to harm populations. And we encounter this a lot in, in our work with Migrant Clinicians Network, right? I'm wondering if you both can speak to frontline workers as a vulnerable population that is not only disproportionately at risk from contracting the virus and the complications, but also the role that they'll be playing within vaccination efforts. So, yeah, I, I think it's really important um, historically, you know, I, I was part of the National Health Service Corps and we do have in the National Health Service a very 
um, tragic history of, of certain things being tried on populations that could have been prevented and weren't. Um, and so I'm very sensitive to the idea of populations that you know, would at, be at risk for being tested. Um, and yet it's sometimes the same population that would benefit from a vaccine or a medication. So if these populations are with, um, with a clear understanding, with true transparency of what the risks and benefits are to a vaccine trial, for example, then I would like to see those same populations benefit from the outcome of those tests and, and the vaccine that comes out. And um, so many of our, our workers, and we at Migrant Business Network do work with you know, farm worker populations, migrant populations, um, and they would benefit from the vaccine. And I think it's important if a vaccine does come out that those people that we call essential workers be offered the opportunity to get the, you know, the vaccines as they come out. This is also very tricky because you can look at this in so many different ways. Um, I wanna see the benefits come once the science shows that, yeah, phase three trials, the vaccine comes out and it's, and it's a good one. I want that to be given to all the populations we consider essential and uh, oftentimes, you know, in the past have been exploited populations as well. So, uh, yeah, I think we have a really good opportunity to do it right this time. And, and it's going to be limited in the beginning. And so, you know, there have been some really good world thought leaders who have looked into this and, and have set up some guidelines of who should be in the first round, who should be in the second round, who should be in the third round. And really exactly what Laz was saying, the people in the first round should be the essential workers, the healthcare workers should be right up front. Anyone, and when we say healthcare workers, we're talking about people that are at the highest risk in hospitals, including the, the sanitation people and the people in the, in the cafeterias, um, along with the doctors and nurses and technicians and all those people. So those people should be front of the line and the people that are out there in the public all the time, the people at McDonald's, the people at supermarkets, the migrant farm workers who are out, forced to, to pick all the crops that we all need to eat, the people in the meatpacking processing plants, those sort of people should be the front of the line and, and not the people who are financially uh, have the most work for all, you know? It was really interesting. One of the, the physicians who used to be the head of the CDC that was on this uh, writing group for these guidelines said himself, I'm 85 years old and I'm at high risk because of my age, but I should not get this vaccine because I'm working from home I have no contact with anyone. I should not be at the front of the line. I should be way back in the line. Laz should be up in the front of the line because he's working every day with COVID patients. Uh, but he is no, he should not be any further up than a migrant farm worker who is living in group housing with other migrant farm workers. And it was so essential because if he doesn't pick the crops, Laz doesn't eat and Laz wastes away into this scrawny little person and, <laughs> and disappears. So that, that, that those are the people that should be the front of the line, it have nothing to do with economics as far as how rich you are, it's how essential you are. And we've already made those distinctions. Who had to go to work? Whoever had to go to work, you know, the bus drivers, 
the, the, the mail carriers, those people and the people in supermarkets, they're the ones that are essential to put themselves at risk. So they're the ones that should get the, the vaccine first. Those of us who are working at home and have the luxury of being able to do, you know, virtual work should be way at the back of the line. It sounds like what you're saying that that I'm hearing Ed, is that if this group is robust enough to be at the front of the line for testing purposes, for trying out the vaccine trial, then certainly by extension, it stands to reason they should absolutely be on the receiving end of the benefit of those completed trials. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. I know that for my own perspective, I'm ready to volunteer as tribute just to get away from working at home with my kids, but that's probably not ultra compatible with what we're trying to achieve with vaccine trials. Along those same lines, since we've already talked about vulnerability as a factor in frontline workers also being the population most likely to be part of the clinical trials, what are some of the what are some practices we can advocate to be used that are culturally attuned to some of the unique stressors or complications facing this population? Well, I think for one thing, I, I always mention this, um, that, that um, you know, when, when we talk about populations and where they live and how they live, you know, we, we tend, we, we don't blame the elderly for living in nursing homes. That's just where we have a lot of our elderly. And, you know, that's just a, a situation in our culture where elderly people live right now. But we do seem to blame, and I see this in, in the news a lot, that our migrant farm workers, you know, live in these congested, you know, trailer homes and places where, where they can't really socially isolate or distance, or, you know, if they, they get infected, they can't isolate, and if they get exposed, they can't quarantine. So, so we, we tend to put the blame, the onus on, on the farm worker where they live, but really we should be trying to help them in their work environment. You know, what, what can they do in, in their, in their um, environment where they spend many hours of the day working and then say, well, how can we help them? How can we put in social distancing? Can we make the assembly line go a little slower so there can be more distance between people or some, something that, that makes sense in that work environment that is you know, culturally appropriate to them and also will help prevent uh, disease. So instead of saying, well, you guys live in this way or you take a crowded bus back, to, back and forth, how can we help that situation? How can we really actually put in practical solutions? And we have done talks with some of our other uh, Migrant Christian Network staff on that issue as well. So we address that in some other um, podcasts or web webinars in the recent past. But it's really important to say, you know, don't don't blame. You know, just like we don't blame the elderly. Well, the elders shouldn't be living in those nursing homes. They should be out in the forest somewhere or wherever. You know, just this is this is the, what we have as a living situation. Let's try to work with some compassion, some understanding, and and some you know ingenuity. I mean, we we can do things in in this situation too. Like you know, different trailers for different people who are being isolated or quarantined or been able to um, get over their infection and now can go back to work. They can be housed in different uh, parts of you know, the, where they were doing their work uh, on the farm. So there's, there are many different possible solutions. And I think this is not impossible to do. So that's one, one of the solutions I can see of, of um, trying to 
respect the situation that we have given you know, each population and the situation that they're facing. 